Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Practice. What is it? Why is it important? Why is it so important that Peter Vale and I, David Firon, have been discussing, writing about, and now recording many conversations about the nature of practice? I think by the time you get through the next six or seven episodes, you will be able to tell us what you think about the nature of your practice. We'll be distinguishing the difference between ordinary work and practice, ordinary effort and practice in many, many ways. When we begin, I asked Peter how far back his interest in organizational behavior and now individual behavior called practice goes. Well, at least 50 years. And so here's Peter giving me that answer. Um, My MBA work sort of set me up to understand organizational behavior, and then the doctoral program really focused on human behavior in organizations. And I was very fortunate to have as a mentor a couple of uh, giants in the field. One is Paul Lawrence, who subsequently went on to become an endowed chair professor at the Harvard Business School. And the other one was Fritz Rothelsberger, who was already an endowed chair at the Harvard Business School. And um, Roethlisberger in particular, as you know, a legendary social scientist who conducted the Hawthorne researches, the famous Hawthorne researches, that really formed the bedrock of the field of organizational behavior and human relations in organizations and kind of all, all variations how many years ago was that, just to put this in context, uh, so that people understand when organizational behavior was founded? You were there <laughs> as a student. How many years ago, roughly, Peter? It was 1958 to 64. There you go. MBA and doctoral. Okay, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I thought maybe that's an interesting feature. I think the philosophy of the school is the same as it was, the same now as it was then. However, the revolution in in computers and other forms of electronic um, um, recording and reporting have transformed the case method of instruction. We had nothing but hard copy printed cases to study, whereas now they have video and they have live online video interviews with members of the company that they're discussing. And and they have all kinds of um, financial data that was not available to us, and market data, Wall, Wall Street stuff, and it, it makes it more complex. But interestingly enough, all of this new instrumentation may actually be obscuring practice. Huh. Uh, um, you, you, in the classroom, you get to see what all these whiz-bang, all this whiz-bang technology can do, but, but it's hard to picture yourself practicing with all this material, mm-hmm. where, where do I start, so to speak? How do I get a job 
doing this kind of thing? And is this in any, in what sense is this managing and leading as opposed to just manipulating technology? So what we're going to be talking about in these podcasts may in fact be even more relevant to today's generation who may have a little bit of difficulty picturing themselves um, doing all these things that they were being introduced to in the classroom. Yeah, in a way, these days, it, it seems like we're in a foot race or with robots or artificial intelligence or, as you say, all these different things that seem to be doing the work of thinking uh, for most any student or even practitioner out there. What I'm hearing you saying is you were out there where you had to do the bare bones work of reasoning your way through these complex uh, cases and try to come up with what would a manager do kind of that's answer. right uh, and uh, the the answer to that question is still being sought what am I going to do in practice with this theory that's with right. this, with these that's ideas right. yeah great there's an old joke may have heard of the Harvard Business School graduate on his first job walks into his office nods to his secretary goes on into his inner office takes his coat off and hangs it on the back of the door, sits down at his desk, presses the um, button to to talk to her, and and then he says, okay, Miss, Miss Smithers, may I have my first case, please? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if ever there was a, a good example, it's, it's funny, but if ever there was a good example of somebody who knew, had basically no idea what the practice of his job was going to entail. Yeah. Uh, that, that makes that point. Um, so, so way back under Rollisberger and Lawrence, uh, you were sort of a budding uh, thinker in regard to the behaving of individuals and organizations. Just through a quick arc here. You're still interested. And that's a few years back. It's a few decades. It's a century back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure. <laughs> how, how is this? But it's uh, 60 what? years anyway. Yeah, a good 60. And uh, how has this stayed in your craw, as we say in Maine, stuck in your craw? This well, because it was so vividly, it was so vividly portrayed to me in my doctoral work. And I already had a value system that, I did not need to be convinced. Roethlisberger had a particular formulation um, in which he had, had personally come to the conclusion. You know, we hear about theory and practice all the time, theory and practice, theory and practice, theory and practice, but we never stop to um, explore what practice means. You can find volume, hundreds of volumes of books about what, what theory means, um, but practice is, is relatively unexplored. People talk about down in the trenches or up on the firing line or out in the real world or whatever, and they kind of leave it at that as, as saying that all that needs to be said about practice. But anyway, what Roethlisberger had come to this formulation that theory and practice need each other, that theory without practice gets more and more abstract more and more potentially um, irrelevant to the real world, um, more and more kind of uh, navel-gazing and doing a lot of perhaps work that's interesting to the theoreticians, but the practitioners don't know what to make of it, and therefore they tune it out. But meanwhile, if, practice, if you have practice but no theory, 
then you just have a lot of miscellaneous data lying around, unrelated to each other, just just um, a, a barrel of facts uh, with no with no, nothing to uh, help you interpret them. I'm reminded of a, a famous statement by a, a Harvard blood chemist of all things, he who said, "Without theory, thinking seems to be impossible. Without theory, thinking seems to be impossible. That is, we must we we must." impute meaning out of a pile of unrelated, seemingly unrelated data. Without theory, thinking seems to be impossible. I've always thought that was a very memorable way to put it. So I got the message. I I realized that my teaching had to be both theoretically competent and, and, uh, and reasonably comprehensive, but I had, it had to be, relevant to practice. Um, that is, practitioners needed to know what, what made sense. I had the, um, the additional benefit of going, my first job was at UCLA, where they did a lot of continuing education. So there was lots of opportunity to teach courses and workshops for working adults who were not theoreticians at all. They were at UCLA to try to learn how to do some things. So I began to be held accountable right from the beginning. What has have all your grand ideas got to do with with practice, Vale? And, uh, and I was 27 years old, and I was younger than all of the students in several of the, of the workshops that I did. And um, I couldn't argue against their point. If, if they said that, if they told me flatly that what I was saying didn't really apply in their situation, I kind of had to take that. I, I couldn't argue that because I wasn't, I wasn't um, familiar enough with their situation. But that would be a point, and I know this from a whole lot of time that's passed knowing you, that you could have paused and did and said, help me understand your situation. You're the expert in your situation. I'm not. So that began what you've called in several papers co-inquiry. Is that true, or am I that's just right. making that up? <laughs> well, that's an application of the idea of co-inquiry. Yeah. Um, by co-inquiry, I simply mean that whoever the presenter is, whether it's a teacher or a trainer or some kind of speaker, needs to be able to have a learning experience right along beside Whoever the students or the the session participants are, um, if you if you set it up so that the teacher doesn't isn't supposed to learn anything, and all he or she is supposed to do is impart knowledge to the to the student, it puts the teacher in a a difficult spot. And if the teacher can honestly say, "Look, I need to learn more about this stuff myself. Give me some examples of what we're talking about." Tell me where this might apply or not apply, and and openly, openly share that he or she needs to learn every bit as much as the students do. And I've done I've done quite a bit of that myself. I find it extremely rewarding and and um, and stimulating to be able to walk out of a meeting and say, "Boy, I learned a lot in there," even though I was running the meeting. And you got paid for it. 
by them. <laughs> Such a deal. <laughs> it is. You're right. But I think one of the things that have drawn us together, Peter, and, and make us want to put the word out about the uh, nature of practice, practice as a way of being, is that in both of our instances, we have been richly rewarded by keeping our teaching designs open for discourse, for back and forth, uh, and partly in my case, because I'm curious as hell. Uh, I couldn't stand not knowing what, what those students in front of me were thinking and doing in their lives, uh, in part because I designed my next episodes or lessons, if you call them, largely on what I was picking up from them. I was still teaching the same theory in a, in a responsible way, bringing it out there, putting it up there as you always had. But then I was, it, what the fun of it was being able to pick up on some little thread that came up maybe in one comment or some uh, things that they wrote afterwards and said, okay, there it is. Now I've got an idea how to make yeah. it even more clear and understandable. <clears throat> right. So that, that's sort of the, the way the ball has rolled all these years for, for you and, and for me. That's right. That's right. And to bring it all down to the present, um, I, don't know, I don't know how I could have gone so many years with so much exposure to practitioners, my classes, as well as out in the consulting world, mm -hmm. uh, or, or just hanging out with practitioners wherever. In 1965, I spent the whole summer at Eastman Kodak Industrial Engineering Division. So here I was with a whole bunch of industrial engineers who are, who are practitioners of quite a high order. And most of them are quite aware that they're professional practitioners. Mm -hmm. So here I was. I, I had no real responsibilities other than to comment on what they were doing from time to time and, and learn from them. Um, I had lots of exposure like that, but only recently, only maybe in the last 10 years, have I began to put it all together, this, uh, this idea that, that it is fuel, fueling yours and my work, these podcasts, as well as any other writing that we do together. I had this sudden flash that there is an abstract concept called practice that is not the same in all instances. A doctor's practice is not the same as an industrial engineer's practice. Mm -hmm. But rather than putting it that way, let's put it the other way. In what ways are they similar? Or in what ways do they have similar issues or, or similar experiences? And it turns out that if you look at it that way, if you ask the question, what, what does a variety of practitioners have in common? it was possible for you and me to come up with a whole set of ideas about the nature of practice. And that's what I hope we will be able to share in these podcasts is what those ideas are. You know, I was thinking if you ask a bunch of, particularly if you ask a bunch of professors, what is the nature of theory? They can go on and on about what the nature of theory is. All night long. That's what they were rewarded for. Generations of students have written thousands of pages of, of blue book answers to the question, what is the nature of theory? Uh, but there's practically nothing on the nature of, of practice. So that's, that's what I'm up to, and I think that's what, what you're up to, is try to identify the nature of practice 
And, and when we write about it, we write with a capital P to indicate that we're talking about the higher order concept of practice, not, not any practice in particular, not anybody's practice in particular, but the, but the higher order of, of practice in general. Uh, in conversation here, we, kind of ha- we just kind of have to make it clear in the way we talk that, that we're talking about practice as a higher order concept. We're in a position, as you know, we're in a position of just trying to see where that goes. We don't, we don't have a theory of practice. I'm not sure. You, I'm not sure there can be a theory of practice. We'll have to see about that. But we certainly have a lot of interesting ideas. I think that that might help learners, whether the learners are in a corporate training seminar or or in a uh, MBA program or wherever they are, understand what they're getting into with the practice that they're talking about. And I think it's a real tragedy. I look back on it, it's a terrible waste on my, on my part that I did, not, I did not take as seriously as I should have during my career the fact that uh, so many students were not hearing anything about practice. They were graduating with their degrees, whether they were undergrad degrees or grad MBAs or whatever they were. And uh, that's where that's where they're finding out what practice is. Yeah. Uh, sometimes sometimes the hard way. I was gonna say it hits them right in the face. Sometimes a very painful way. So Yeah, I think of it just to interrupt your thought a moment, because this has always been my concern. At one point or another in your writing peer, you made the, the point that we're graduating people with management degrees who don't know how to run a business. Well, I think part of what intrigues me about our collaboration on this is that these days they can learn to run their own practice. They can be an internal managerial leader to themselves. Yes. And that this thing that you and I are speculating about and, and are fascinated about is something that they can listen to in these podcasts and say, huh, hey, in a way, maybe I didn't get all I was hoping for from my training or from my schooling, but hey, I'm out here now in the very real world. And I'll either let a company try to tell me how to run my life or I'll take it on myself, and then within a company or even beyond, I'm in charge. What do you think of that idea? Well, I think it's quite a neat idea. I mean, in, in, a, in a way, in the, first, in the first instance, we would want a learner to identify the practice that he or she has. Uh, as, as you know, we've worked, we have worked out a definition of practice that emphasizes results, getting things done. But it also emphasizes consciousness and awareness. The true practitioner is strong, and where he or she needs to learn more mm-hmm. um, is after increased learning all the time. You don't you don't rest on your laurels as a practitioner in the environment we're in, which is where there's so much turbulence, change is happening so fast. You you and I have scratched our heads over the question, what, what is all this digi- digitization yeah. doing to practice? Um, putting everything on disk, putting everything, uh, all kinds of techniques and methods and approaches into algorithms 
uh, that supposedly the practitioner is just going to hit a button and and uh, the results will will appear. So to regard oneself as one as the first object of of one's practice is, I think, a very fruitful notion. Thank you for uh, mentioning that. As we're moving close to our time on this one, I will emphasize another aspect of that sort of working uh, thought about practice. Uh, it is intentional, definitely. But as they encounter, and they will, uncertain situations, have to solve their way through a mess and come out on the side, the other side, here's the payoff. They grow. They become not only better at that particular practice, but in so doing, they become a more confident, competent, uh, resourceful person. I don't care what the practice is. If you're reaching that stage where you're getting that payoff of having learned your way through, hopefully using some theory to shape your, your approach, it's, it's what I think will keep people excited about the ideas that you and I have cooked up, which we're calling initially notes or propositions. And I hope people will look forward to each of the podcasts where we'll be featuring a set of our propositions recognizing this isn't just about two old teachers <laughs> uh, hashing out some old ideas. This is very much spot on and perhaps in many ways will become more important to the future of our practice of teaching as well as people's own practices. So this is, uh, this is kind of uh, an adventure we're on, Peter. It is. It is indeed. And your, your comment about the, um... Sets, sets of propositions, that's a good way to put what we're going to try to do with these podcasts. Of the, of the 38 propositions that we have so far, um, they go together in clumps uh-huh. and uh, not necessarily very very tight clumps, but they, are, they, they do clump enough so that, that a set can be discussed together. I, I guess I want to emphasize the importance for learners and for the for the, the practice of of education i want to emphasize how how much it needs enrichment of of a consciousness of practice the importance of practice you and i have seen ideas about management and leadership become increasingly elaborate and inc- increasingly academic yeah and theoretical in our careers to the point where, where you hardly know that we're talking about a human, one human being persuading others to follow him or her. That's right. Um, and, and to accept his or her ideas. So who knows how far into the, into the warp and woof of educational practice these ideas can go. Are we talking about, are we talking about throwing out theory entirely? Of course not. Because back to Roethlisberger, if we throw out theory entirely, then you've just got a miscellaneous pile of, of unrelated data. So it's a, ba- a, a what we're seeking is a balance between theory and practice, with a, um, a, a rich understanding of the nature of theory, and of the nature of practice. In fact, maybe as I think about it, we haven't done this yet, but as I think about it, we may need to end up writing some propositions about the balance between theory and practice so that maybe we and others who uh, are interested have some um, idea 
about where this is all going in terms of its development. I agree. A balance between theory and practice. And I would suggest that that balancing, while we can work it out externally to an individual learner, the more we can help him or her do the inner balancing, the better. And I think of some very successful physicians, for example, who seem to be pretty wonderful at diagnosing and treating because they can work between the who I am as, as a presenting patient and what they know. Now we cross our fingers that they're right, but that would be true of almost any sector of practice that you and I are thinking about. We will be inviting, and I'll reinforce this, and set up a system by which anyone who's learned something from our podcast or wants us to learn something from them can can click on a link and come in and, and uh, send us an email. We'll try to respond to those and definitely we'll incorporate any good ideas that come our way. Last thoughts on this segment, Peter? Well, I'm excited. I, I uh, think it should be recorded that this podcast idea is yours. It's, <laughs> it's a technology that I'm not familiar with. So I'm very much in a learner mode on it. In fact, before you and I started talking, I couldn't, I couldn't have written two sentences about what a podcast is. Um, so now I'm, here I am doing it, Ma. <laughs> and I want to confess something. While I participated in podcasting fairly recently, I'm out learning as fast as I can how to make sure that it's well edited and how we can get this out to a largest possible audience. So I'm learning as I'm going too. So I may be a toenail ahead of you, Peter, on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you can get busy. Okay. Very good. And we look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Thank you.